Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Mark Edmondson is with us today. He is professor of English at University of Virginia. He's author of, among many volumes, uh, Self and Soul, A Defense of Ideals, Why Teach, Why Read, (laughs) and a new book entitled Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman and the Fight for Democracy. Welcome, Professor Edmondson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, my first question, you know, your book, Why Read? Mark, can't we just watch? <laughs> I guess we could watch if we have to. I mean, I spent some time watching, and maybe you do too. Sure, sure. But if you're going to learn how to, if you're going to learn how to talk to yourself, it helps to read people who really know how to use language. And if you want to learn how to talk to the world, it really helps to read people who really know how to use language. And if you really want to know the world, those people who have known it better than we perhaps can ourselves are invaluable allies. So. Uh, you know, there are things to be said for watching, but I think reading still beats it out by a, a fair piece. Well, and and reading Whitman, this is your uh, this is your call in in the book. You say uh, straight off, echoing Whitman, that democracy calls for a new literature. What? Why is that? Why Why does democracy need a new, new literature? Can't Can't we just read uh, Flaubert? Well, I suppose we can, <laughs> uh, but Walt was rather militant for being a mild person overall on this uh, on this matter um, and he felt ultimately that just about all pre-existing literature was futile um, that is that it paid undue attention to kings and plutocrats and nobles and the special um, Walt felt that democracy needed a literature of the ordinary and the everyday um, a literature of the people um, and, you know, if you had told Walt that he was a really special person and a spectacular poet, I know he would have been flattered on one level. But on another level, he would have thought, no, I'm just Walt, one of the roughs, one of the many. Um, and he wanted to show the glories of the many rather than the extraordinary prowess and allure of the, uh, of the few. And so that had to get started somewhere. And a, uh, an unknown uh, carpenter and journeyman printer and adequate journalist decided in the year 1854 that he was the guy for the job. And and you know, we weren't going to get this in Europe. Couldn't couldn't happen there. No. I mean Europe had its forms of radicalism, it's it's but but not not the kind that Whitman really really thought was necessary. No, that's right. Um you know Whitman um he would occasionally pay a compliment to a European writer. He said, I think Dickens may be a democratic writer, and that sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. And he spent his whole life trying to figure out what shape 
his relationship was to aristocracy. And he wrote four or five pieces on Shakespeare and talked about him and thought about him all the time. And he eventually came to the conclusion that Shakespeare was a very subtle critic of monarchy and of kings. And I think in that he's right. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you think Whitman was genuinely radical in certain ways? I think he was radical in the demands that he makes on his readers in order to create a real democracy. And maybe he was he asked for too much from us. He wanted us to imagine ourselves as blades of grass, um, each an individual blade, not special, not extraordinary, but a little different from the blades of grass that are next to us. And if, as the biologists tell us, we may well be um, hierarchical animals, then um, that's going to be a chore, you know. He also wanted us, and I do a little riff on Whitman and the sun. He says at a certain point that uh, dazzling and tremendous, how quick the sunrise would kill me if I could not now and always send sunrise out of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, um, that's strong language for Walt because he loved just about everything in creation. Um, and I think that the um, vendetta against the sun is a vendetta against, you know, kings and special people and the extraordinary... And he understood the allure of uh, those um, uh, those forces and those figures. And uh, he didn't want to overwhelm them, rebel and guillotine them. That would be radical. He wanted us to turn away from them, I think, and move our interest back in the direction of the common and the, uh, and the everyday. So if it's a radicalism, it's a very quiet uh, radicalism. Yeah. You note that Walt Whitman, Walter Whitman, Jr., at age 35 in 1854, he, he really wasn't anyone terribly special. There was, I don't think there was any inkling of what, what was going to happen the following year. This miraculous volume, Leaves of Grass. Or do, do you have any ideas about what, what were the ingredients that come together? You, you, you mentioned Emerson. You make a lot of that, um, the credit yeah. there. But, but uh, is that... Is that the main thing, the encounter with Emerson? I think the encounter with Emerson was the trigger. He said, I was simmering, simmering, simmering. Emerson brought me to a boil. And I think yeah. there's truth in that. But there's other stuff in those, those 1853 four notebooks that indicates that there were thoughts and feelings that are being activated that were more interior to Whitman. And one of them was this discovery of the soul. Well, we all know something about souls. Um, but uh, Whitman's soul was a little bit different. He decided that he wasn't just one of the roughs and an everyday uh, fella and a working man. He saw he had this entity within him that he wanted to explore. And all he knew about it in the beginning, I think, was that it was um, extremely proud and would never be condescended to, and that it was extremely loving and compassionate. Um, And from there, he started out in the direction of a soul that is, I wouldn't call it secular, Mm-hmm. But it's not. Uh, it doesn't rhyme well with any Christian uh, or religious senses that we have of the soul. And I think that got him going in a really important way. That discovered, oh, there's a part of myself I never knew anything about, and now I'm going to explore that part of myself and see what happens. I mean, but what you say is is indicative of a deeper truth. Maybe it's just a miracle. Where did it come from? You read the stuff that he wrote before 1854, and it's so regular, so average. Yeah. And then suddenly, boom. Out of nowhere, this absolutely magnificent volume. You, you, you like the 1855 
volume. What is the significance of that of that image on the frontispiece? Well, I'm 55 volume, um, in part because I think that as Walt revises Song of Myself, which I take to be his greatest poems yeah. for the 55, the 60, and the rest of the uh, rest of the volumes, he becomes a good deal more explanatory. It's, it's as though he had this amazing um, uh, spiritual experience. And he spends the rest of his life trying to figure out what the heck happened. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more um, analytical stuff and less experiential stuff. Just a, a quick example. He says um, in the beginning, I celebrate myself and what I assume you assume. Well, after that, he revises it. It's I celebrate myself and sing myself right? and what I assume you, uh, you shall assume. And... Um, the I sing myself is kind of a nod in the direction of the epic tradition, as yeah. in I'm self-consciously now aware of writing an American epic. Well, whether that self-consciousness takes away from or adds to the poem's an open question. I'm glad to have it in future volumes because it gives me some tips, but I think it does take away from the emotional intensity of the poem overall. I, I, I agree. I agree. And so you're, what- a 50, you're a 55 fan? Yes, 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 and and I, I mean we we can get into this. I think I think his experience in the war in the hospitals may have given him forms of creative expression that maybe made some of the poetry not so necessary to him. But but that that's that's we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. What about the fact that in the eighteen fifty five there was no name, no author listed on the title page? We we get it. We get the copyright. Uh, a little Walter Whitman Jr., but not on the title page, nothing. Isn't it amazing? Oh, well, of course, he's got that frontispiece, which is a uh, an image of himself really as one of the roughs. Yeah. And I'm inclined to think that that is uh, what he calls myself. Um, and uh, it's, a, uh, it's what Walt was before he started to delve into his soul. And the burden of the, uh, the, the theme of the first part of the poem is the uh, intermingling of the self and the soul, and I think that's that's an uh, that's an image of the self. And then once he's made that conjunction, that is, once he's become a whole sort of a being, uh, he goes on um, with tremendous um, creative fire. You 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 think "Song of Myself" is is a masterpiece? I I, I do too. You know, I was at a meeting, I guess, about a year and a half ago. I was on a panel with people, and they were talking about the epic and. And someone said, well, what is the American epic? And I said, Song of Myself. And the other people said, no, no, that can't be an epic. That's not a narrative. And, and I, I thought, well, it's, it's it, uh, you know, the American epic maybe, maybe should be different. But anyway, uh, uh, if, if you've got in Song of Myself, uh, you say it marks a journey. Where do we begin and where do we end? Well, um, we, we begin with a... Um uh, Walt Whitman, one of the roughs, um, an everyday working man, and we see him connect with his uh, with his soul in this that amazing love scene in the beginning, where they kind of the self and soul tumble all over each other. Mm-hmm. Whitman is nothing if not daring there, and um, then he begins to pick up momentum, and he's able to do things he couldn't do before. He's able to come up with the amazing uh, image of the grass, right? The image of democracy and the image of his. Uh, of his poem, um, he then begins his great catalogs where he's identifying from above all the Americans that are below him and creating this sense of great American uh, community. 
he moves on then to have his contention with the son, where he says that, you know, no, the son and grandeur and the feudal tradition are not going to overwhelm uh, him. Um, and then he ch- changes a little bit in terms of his relationship to people. He's suddenly able to actually become that. So he'll become the hounded slave, become mm-hmm. the old artillerist. Tells a story about a massacre in the uh, Texas War uh, for Independence, uh, where he says that um, uh, he, pra- he praises the Americans who are massacred by the uh, Mexican Spanish, Mexican army. Uh, for none of them, compa- none of them um, obeyed the command to kneel. Mm-hmm. It's a subtle point in the poem, but I think really important. In that, you know, what is an American? A real democratic American? Somebody who doesn't kneel to others and somebody who doesn't make other people kneel to, uh, to them. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part of the poem, and we're making progress here, I think, um, that doesn't get very much commentary from scholars. And that is the last, say, 20% of the poem um, has to do with religion. And Walt wanted Americans to be the most religious people the world had ever known, but he didn't think that conventional religion, nothing that was established, was right for us. So he does say, you know, that he adores God, loves God, but he does not pry into God's identity. Um, the figure he's really interested in is uh, is Jesus, uh, of course, and he's crucified with Jesus, um, and that's one of that's his great daring identification. Mm-hmm. Then that amazing passage comes along, where he is resurrected along with Jesus, but Jesus is not Jesus the Lord who's about to rise on high. He's part of, and this is the phrase that's really a zinger, part of an average, unending procession. Jesus may be the first Democrat, but he's just one of us. He's the first American, but he walks down the road with us all through America and off into Canada and off into the rest of the world uh, as part of the great Democratic mass. <laughs> so he's done this amazing job of you know, settling all kinds of uh, religious questions. He spends time taking all prior religions and ridiculing them a little bit, teasing them a little bit, and putting them into binders and putting them on the shelf. And then he starts moving to the end of the poem, uh, where he's solved all of these real problems for democracy. What kind of religion are we? What kind of relationship we're going to have to violence? What's our sexual life going to be like? This, this stuff about that. Um, what's our emblem? The grass. What's our enemy? The sun. He's achieved this enormous amount, and he's got one thing to figure out. It seems to me, and that is he's got to figure out who he is. You know, is he Walt Whitman, the greatest poet who ever lived? Well, that's kind of a problem for the whole democratic ethic. <laughs> so there are basically three where he describes himself each time in a different way. Uh, sometimes he's talking about, uh, you know, you and the you and Walt going down the road. To... Then other times, in very non-Whitmanian terms, to me anyway, he's talking about how a real student is the one who knows how to kill his teacher. Yeah. So un-Whitmanian. But you see him floundering a little bit. Um, and part of it, I think, is trying to figure out who he is and what he's achieved, you know? And his relationship to greatness is still something that he can't quite figure out. Mark, Mark, you, you know, you, you mentioned the teacher issue, and yeah. I mean, one, one of your best-known books is, is about teacher, a teacher. Uh, sure. And you mentioned that line, that amazing line in Whitman, he says, he most honors my style who learns under it to destroy the teacher. Yes, What do you think? I think that um, that is Walt trying things out and sounding, every now and then in the poem, I think, doesn't sound like you, Walt. And I think this sounds more like a thing that Emerson could say or Nietzsche could say. Mm-hmm. But Walt is a surpassingly gentle soul for the most part. 
Um, and so agon, you know, a kind of Bloomian sense of what it is to achieve intellectual or poetic independence, doesn't really fit with him. Um, I, so I think he, enters, he, he answers this question of greatness when he goes to the hospitals during the Civil War and becomes the humblest of the humble, you know, servant to all the, uh, all the soldiers, uh, black and white, Union and Confederate in front of him. He spends two years doing it. He destroys his health. Yeah. And uh, he achieves one of the most remarkably moving things that any literary figure, not only in America, or, uh, but the whole world, has ever achieved. I don't think people understand in those two years what, what it was like to be in a, in a hospital at that time. I mean, part of it's just the gruesome nature of the, of the suffering. Oh, the, my. Just the, the pain, the groans, and, and the constant death. And it was heroic work. I, I, I genuinely, this, this was remarkably, a remarkable sacrifice on his part. It was. It, it absolutely was. He was there for two years. He showed up every day. He wasn't a nurse. He called himself a hospital visitor. And he sat with the men and talked with them. And he wrote their letters if they couldn't write. Or if sometimes, as sometimes was the case, they had lost their hands or the use of their arms. Yeah. He would wipe their foreheads when they were feverish. So many of the men were sick, um, not only wounded, but sick from uh, diarrhea and dysentery. Yeah. And he'd do the best he could to buck them up. You know, well, you know all about this. He would go out and take the little money that he had, and he would spend it on uh, candy and tobacco and foods that they might like and bring it in and distribute it. One of the most moving stories that, from the hospitals is that he knows that there's a group of recently wounded men from Indiana and Illinois, I think it is, and he knows that they've never had ice cream uh, in their lives. And so he goes off and gets himself a couple of 10-gallon 10 10 vats of ice cream <laughs> and turns up in the ward with them and starts passing them out to these men. Mm. You know, and this is, this is a, a saintly guy, also the greatest poet we've ever produced. Yeah. So how these two things can come together in one being is just more than I can imagine. It's, uh, it's staggering. Uh, well, really. on, on, on that score, that issue, you say that Whitman believes in, quote, a beautiful unity. Where, where does he put evil and suffering in his universe? Well, that's, you know, that's the William James line. He says, you know, Whitman is a proponent of the religion of healthy-mindedness. Mm. And that means he won't allow in anything that's dark or down. But if we go back to that scene of the massacre of the, uh, of the rangers, you know, that's evil. Um, yeah. they, um, they take him up, they massacre him, and they tell, worse than killing them, they tell these democratic, free Americans to get on their knees. And they won't do that. Mm -hmm. right? And I think it all comes out of there. It all comes out of that beautiful moment that kings demand that you kneel, princes demand that you kneel, Americans never should demand anybody kneels, and that uh, they uh, will never kneel themselves. And that can ripple out a long way yeah. into an ethical vision. You know, when, when we as a country, as we sometimes do, have made people kneel for absolutely no reason, that's evil. Um, so I think it's, it's implied there. It's quiet, but I think it's there. Yeah. And... and uh you know, you, you, we do have those episodes a lot like that massacre or, I mean, other, the, the hounded slave and others. But you say that Whitman, yes, they're, they're, he, he's a political poet. He's a poet of democracy. But before that, or, or more fundamental than that, he's a poet of joy. Is joy sort of the core, uh, the core faith, the core, the core feeling in Leaves of Grass? Oh, I think it is in a certain way. And I almost apo I sort of apologize to the reader and myself for 
um, enlisting Whitman in a political kind of quest. I mean, I think it's definitely in there. He feels strongly about it. It's part of the poem. Um, but, um, and I do that because I think that democracy is under considerable pressure now. And bad thing to have, you know, the greatest democratic poet um, we've ever known brought to life a little bit and asked to enter into implicitly some of the difficulties that we're encountering right now. But yes, you're right. I mean, the fundamental impulse of that poem is to um, restore your joy in being alive. You know, a mouse, my, one of my favorite lines in the poem, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. <laughs> it's true. It is. <laughs> you know, he loves being alive. My respiration and my inspiration. He just one great rhapsody after another um, on the subject of being. Right? Um, and uh, so that, you're right. I think that's at the heart of the poem. When I teach it, I spend more time talking about that. But this was a bit of a, this is more of a, well, this was a pragmatic book rather than a joyful book. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you, you mentioned Whitman's ability to identify, you know, to be super empathetic. And that yeah. you go on to say that democracy actually depends upon people's ability to enter into the hearts of minds of one another. I mean, what, why is it that just laws and, you know, regulations and customs manners are not enough for a democracy well you know what's going to keep us when we disagree from each other's throats right hmm. if you look at a hierarchical civilization a european civilization at least in the 19th century there are so many practices and rules and regulations that are established that keep people within a certain kind of context i don't think we necessarily have that you know, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence are guides, but we don't have the old social practices that are going to keep us uh, with some measure of discipline and restraint and ability to conserve what we have at our best. So failing that, um, there's only one solution, at least from Whitman's point of view, and that is mutual affection and mutual uh, understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you see a nation now where it almost appears that half the country hates the other half of the country. Hmm. Well, you know, what do we have to prevent that from happening? We don't have a top-down structure where the people on top can say, hey, cut that out. Mm -hmm. You know, what we have is something much more messy, messily written. So if you can't generate strong, adhesive feelings uh, between people on the right, people on the left, conservative people, liberal people, what have you, uh, it's going to be very difficult for us not to break out into conflict that is deeply destructive. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. There is a lot of eroticism in Song of Myself, that 28-year-old that, that woman, for instance. Uh, yeah. If you want to say something about that, but then also I would, I would ask a little biographical question, Mark. Why do we know so little of Whitman's sex life. So, so first, if, if you want to look at the poem and then, and then that other question. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, to me, the signal erotic moment in the poem uh, is right about dead center where Whitman becomes, let us say, intimate with himself, right? There's that amazing onanistic scene. I'm being held helpless by a red marauda. Well, it doesn't take long to figure out who the red marauda is. And he Mm. really resists that masturbatorial urge, and then he kind of succumbs to it. And uh, out of the semen that flows out, Whitman is a daring poet, this whole world is created. Um, And so it wasn't so bad, but he was very worried about it, and also very worried about exposing it to the um, uh, to readers. You know, when I talk about this with students, I'll say, does anybody want to take a crack at what's going on here? <laughs> and everybody sits there silently, silently, silently. Yeah. And then one brave student will say, sounds like masturbation to me. Yeah. And the whole room applauds. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure's been taken off them. And I, those students, the students who answer that question are always close to my heart. I sat in a seminar of Harold Bloom's once and he says, what's going on, right? <laughs> and none of us would answer it if we just sat there because, you know, you don't want to be in graduate school and be called, you know, kid masturbation for the next four years if you're wrong, even if you're right, maybe. Well, did, um, did you, so did you work fact, with, this was graduate school or undergrad? Yeah. Grad school? Uh, graduate school. Did, did you work with Bloom on, on? I did, yeah. Yeah. I did. Um, he was my thesis director. He and, he and Hillis Miller were my thesis directors. And I was very influenced by his teaching, which was very, incredibly rich um, and somewhat different from his writing in ways that aren't all that easy to define. But, yeah, he was definitely a valuable presence. I, was, I feel great gratitude toward him. Yeah. Um, but in, in, terms, in terms of the erotic, that's the big moment. And it's after that, after that self-exposure, that he becomes bolder on a lot of different levels. He begins to enter into other people rather than just getting up close to them. And he becomes a little bit more negative. He has some unpleasant things to say about over-scrupulous, super-ego-ridden people, yeah. uh, religiously intoxicated people. He does it through a meditation on animals, but it's, it's negative. And he starts saying negative things about past religions, though in a very jocular kind of, uh, kind of way. But yeah. he's clearly freed himself, and his mind is more expansive and more daring after, that, after he gives us that scene. Um, so I do think, you know, when you get back to your remark about is it an American epic, in a way it is because it, it it's about change and development and about how an American starts out as just a regular anybody who could have lived in, I don't know, Europe or something, and then becomes somebody who is truly an American in the best sense, at least imaginatively. Yeah. You know, who can bring this off in life? I don't know. Hmm. Well, I think Walt did when he went to the hospitals. Hmm. You know, he did all the things that he said a person could do in the poem. He was incredibly tough. Emerson said he had buffalo strength, and he was incredibly tender, so gentle with these men. And, you know, greatest poet we've ever had, you walk into a ward, and there he is sitting in the back with ten guys who actually can stand up and talk. And what are they doing? They're playing 20 questions, one Hmm. of Walt's favorite games. They they loved him, too, didn't they? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, they called him the... He's in his 40s, but they had made him for an old man, and they called him Old Woolly Neck, one thing and another. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Walt's own sexual life, what a mystery. <laughs> what no. a mystery. Now, let's just start on the, in the heterosexual zone. Um, he's not interested. Um, he, he loves women. He esteems, admires women. He writes a lot about mothers. He has many women friends, but he's very attractive to women, and they come on to him in their 19th century manner. And uh, he always puts them off, always charmingly, right? Yeah. Um, his real attraction, as we both know, is to males. 
Um, and he loves young men and particularly young working class men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he wants to spend time with them. That's how he gets to know hospitals because he knows stage drivers in New York who got hurt and he would go visit them in the hospital so he feels a certain conversance with that uh, particular environment. So um, he um, he's really drawn to young working class males and um, he is loves to be with them but and he's obviously he develops infatuations with them there's in, as i mentioned in the book there's a figure in the hospitals named of all things tom sawyer and he clearly has a horrible crush on tom sawyer and he's kind of begging tom to come live with him and mm-hmm. be his love forever and tom has no idea what to make of this and just kind of he's a very you know average probably not fully literate guy and he's just blown away by walt's attentions and just backs off and backs off um but um, w- whether Walt then hooked up with Peter Doyle, which he did, a Confederate deserter, um, and they spent you know most of five or six years together um, friend- in a friendly manner, did it go beyond mere friendship? Did it enter into the realms of uh, actual genital sex? Who knows? Yeah. You know, when Walt got a letter from Virus saying, "Why don't you just come out and tell us that you're a, you know a homosexual man?" Walt was absolutely revolted. You know, that filth, that indecency, I can't bear it. So who knows? He was a mystery. Yeah. There's one line that um, I think is, and you, you probably can re- recall this one. He says, to touch myself to someone else is about as much as I can stand. Yeah. And that made a little bit of a key to Walt's yearning and also his reluctance and resistance. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I think most scholars now think that Walt led a thriving homosexual life with lots of lovers. Um, Richard Poirier, who had amazing, to me, intuitive grasp of Whitman, without ever having spent the time of writing a book about him, but he just got Whitman on a lot of levels, strongly believes that Whitman had a thriving uh, sexual life. Uh, Bloom says no, it was chiefly onanistic. Um, others are agnostics. I'm one of the agnostics. Do you have, th- do you have thoughts about this? I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I mean, I, I and, and and you know, Mark, I don't I don't have much of a stake in answering the question. I, 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 I let let's let's let the question be out there. I'm happy to have other people address it, but I, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I I'm 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 happy keeping it open. You you have actually you implied this a moment ago, but in the book you say that the hospital work in a way completed song of myself and, and I think I think you 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 explained that uh, a moment ago but you have a term in the book the democratic Gotterdammerung what do you mean by that yeah right <laughs> well Gotterdammerung is the death of the gods yeah uh, and um, when uh, when Walt is doing his religious thing he has these astonishing passages where he moves through all heretofore existing religions and he and he's not often a satirist he satirizes them often gently and then he says, I put them in binders and put them onto the shelf. And then he does another passage where he starts out, I think he's a tree worshiper back there in Druidical times. And he becomes a figure in every single religion, this procession, that procession, right up until, I think it's a contemporary Protestant church. Um, and he says, suggests, these things are all fine, but they're really just preludes. To what we in America have now, which is the religion of democracy. It's really the only religion. Hmm. You know, this is where you can really lead a rich life. Um, and you don't dismiss Jesus because Jesus is the first American. You don't dismiss God because God created this wonderful earth, but he's absolutely um, uh, inscrutable. 
um, but you uh, you create a religion of democracy, and you uh, you find your meaning in that. The book is Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman and the Fight for Democracy. Professor Edmondson, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.